You know, as I've been thinking about uh, not only the year that has passed, I've also thought about the decade that has passed and the number of predictions about the world ending. I don't know how many of you remember um, year 2000, the Y2K thing. Remember that? Remember being on December 31st, 1999, thinking that the world's going to end because computers couldn't read four-digit years, right? Uh, and, uh, and all these things, you know, we're going to lose power and computers, and it was going to be the apocalypse. Uh, and, um, and I remember we had a tradition in the church where we were at that time that we would receive the new year praying together at midnight. And we would usually hold hands and, you know, as evangelicals do, we close our eyes when we pray and, and all that. But I remember December 31st, 1999, at 11.59, as we were holding hands and praying, we kind of had our eyes open. Because we said, if the lights go out, that means the world's going to end, right? And so we prayed, midnight arrived, nothing really happened, right? And, uh, and so then uh, later, a couple years later, people were talking about the, the Mayan calendar and how the Mayan calendar supposedly ended uh, with the, uh, December 21st, 2012. And so they thought that that was a prediction for the world to end and people started speculating and conjecturing about this and some people thought it was silly, other people thought you know, it was serious and, and there were actually people who began to prepare for the end of the world. Well, the 21st of December 2012 came and went and nothing really happened. And some of us thought, ah, that was silly, the Mayan calendar, who pays attention to that? I don't even pay attention to my calendar on my wall, right? But, um, but then a pastor from San Antonio, John Hagee, uh, came up in 2014 with the four blood moons. I don't know if you heard about this, but he uh, sort of figured out that uh, looking at predictions of these blood moons, these moons that, that look red at a particular time of the year, that these four blood moons, which are a strange phenomenon, I mean, they're not like, I, you know, never happens, they happen with some frequency, but that there were, the next four blood moons were going to coincide with Jewish festivals. So the first one was gonna be in April 15, 2014, right on Passover. The second one was going to be on October 8, 2014, which is right on Sukkot, or the Feast of Tabernacles. And then the third one on Easter, I mean, on, on uh, Passover of the next day, uh, of the next year, rather, and then Sukkot of the next year. And what John Hagee was proposing was that this was the fulfillment of a prophecy in the book of Joel, and that it was not when Jesus would come back, but the beginning of the end. So according to that, we're in the beginning of the end. Well, I don't really know much about blood moons, but I, I, I just find it fascinating that during the decade of, of 2020, uh, of 2010 to 2020, or really over that, day, that, that period of time, that we were so obsessed with predicting the end of the world. In fact, people are still talking about that today. They're thinking, oh, this is the end of ends. This is the, the end of, of this or the end of that. And, and we're living, you know, in the last days. And I am so comforted by the words of Jesus in Matthew 24, 36, where he says, but about the day or the hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, 
nor the son, but only the father. Only my dad knows when the world's going to end. And you know, my life is in dad's hands, in the father's hands. So if the world ends today, I'm going to be okay. And if the world doesn't end till 100 or 200 years from now, I'm going to be okay because my life is hidden in Christ. You know? And so we know that we can't really predict the day that Jesus will come back. We can't predict the day that the world will end with any kind of certainty. But let's just pretend for a moment that you knew when the world's going to end. Let's pretend for just a moment that 2012, 20, what year are we in now? 2021. <laughs> I lost track. That 2021 is the year when the world ends. Let, let's pretend that this is the last year you and I get to live here on earth. How would that change your perspective? What would you focus on? What, what things would you not care about? What, what kind of things would you do differently? What relationships would you value? We're coming to the end of our series in the book of Acts. We're going to cover the last uh, eight chapters or so, beginning with chapter 21. And we're calling this last portion the home stretch. As Paul draws near to the end of his ministry, he's aware that the end of his life is also near. This is the home stretch for him. This is the last part of the race for him. And as he's running the race, his mind is set. It is during this portion of the life of Paul that we're going to study over the next several Sundays from now until Palm Sunday. It is during this period of his ministry that Paul writes to the Philippians from a prison cell and he says this about this part of the race. He says, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. See, Paul is committed to running during his last days with his eyes set on the prize. He presses on like a champion that knows that his real prize is Jesus Christ and his real home is not here. As we follow Paul during his last chapters of the book of Acts, I hope that the Holy Spirit will stir up in you and in me a fervor for running the home stretch. That, that whether this is the last year of our lives or whether we get to live another three decades, that, that we run as if it was the home stretch. As Paul pressed on to win the prize, he discovered a couple of things. We're going to pick up our story in Acts chapter 21. And we're going to identify three, three things that I think uh, Paul discovered as he got close to the end. And, and there are three things that I think are relevant to us as, as we try to focus our attention on the prize, as we, as we press on to the finish line. And the first thing that we notice here is that strangers become friends. Chapter 21 walks us through the last leg of Paul's third missionary journey. And as, as that is taking place, we see that Paul is discovering homes around the world that are welcoming 
friends around the world that are extending hospitality to him. And the interesting thing about this is that these were places and people that formerly were strangers. These are foreign cities. These are people who Paul wouldn't have known otherwise, but now they're like family. Let's begin our text in Acts chapter 21, verse one. It says, after we had torn ourselves away from them, we put out to sea and sailed straight to Kos. The next day we went to Rhodes and from there to Patera. We found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, went on board and set sail. After sighting Cyprus and passing to the south of it, we sailed on to Syria. We landed at Tyre where our ship was to unload its cargo. We sought out the disciples there and stayed with them seven days. Through the spirit, they urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When it was time to leave, we left and continued on our way, all of them, including wives and children, accompanied us out of the city. And there on the beach, we knelt to pray. After saying goodbye to each other, we went aboard the ship and they returned home. We continued our voyage from Tyre and landed in uh, Ptolemais, where we greeted the brothers and sisters and stayed there with them for a day. Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. This is the continuation of the story. After Paul had been in Miletus, this the southwest corner of Asia where he had called the elders of the church in Ephesus to meet up with him so that he could bid farewell to them. That was an emotional scene. It, it, it was a heart-wrenching moment where, where Paul and some dear friends were saying goodbye to each other. And that's where chapter 21 begins. That's, where, that's why Luke says, after we had torn ourselves away from them. He's talking about the elders of the church in Ephesus at Miletus. He's saying, after we tore ourselves up, like prying them. These people were embracing and, and hugging and, and sad that they weren't going to be able to see each other. But, but they had to tear themselves away in order to continue their journey. These people at Ephesus who at one point had been strangers were now close friends that they had to pry away themselves from. People with a different ethnicity, people with a different nationality, people with a different culture, people with different traditions and perhaps a different language. They had nothing in common with Paul. But when Jesus came to Ephesus, when the gospel arrived in Ephesus, these people became family. They became brothers and sisters in Christ. These strangers became friends. You know, one of the things that has been difficult on some of us during this COVID time has been uh, the fact that we don't get to see everybody in our church. That, uh, there are people that we don't get to see on Sundays because they perhaps they're staying at home and they're watching the live stream and we respect that, but we miss seeing them. I'm just going to be honest. Uh, we respect whatever they choose to do for the right reasons, uh, but we miss seeing them. Uh, another thing is we have people who have moved away to another city during this time and it's been sad that we haven't been able to say goodbye. The people who we, we saw before the pandemic and now we won't see because they've moved away somewhere else. Thank God that there's other ways to stay in touch. Some people have even changed churches. I talk to pastor friends. I'm, I'm friends with a lot of the pastors in the area and I talk to them and, and they tell me, you know, that people are changing churches. 
And some of them said, we're just waiting for this whole thing to be over to see who's going to land where. <laughs> but, but, you know, uh, in that kind of difficulty, the beautiful thing for me is the new people that God is bringing to Calvary. Every Sunday I get to meet a, a new person, a first-time guest in one of our services. Uh, some of them are, are new believers. Some of them are are just seeking the gospel. They don't even know it yet. Uh, last Sunday, we had a couple that joined our church. Today, we're going to baptize somebody in one of our services. And, and so it's been exciting to see the new people that God has brought. Strangers before COVID, but now they're brothers and sisters in Christ. That's part of the gift that comes when we focus on the price from Miletus to Patra, sailing around Cyprus to the south of it. You can see that in the map. And then landing at Tyre and then to Caesarea. It says that in Tyre, they, they, they found some disciples, they found some believers, and they stayed there seven days. When was the last time you hosted somebody in your house that was not your family for seven days? And they slept there and they ate there. This is a whole band of people that's traveling with Paul. What, what a touching scene it is, not only that they extended hospitality to them, but that when Paul and his companions leave, everyone, including their wives and children, this is familia time, everyone walks with them to the beach and they kneel down and they pray. What a wonderful scene of how God brings strangers to become friends and to become family in the life of Paul as he's focused on the home stretch, what a tender thing it is. And then they get to Caesarea and they find Philip the evangelist, one of the seven, and they're staying there. Over and over again in every city, they find people who they didn't know before, but now are brothers and sisters in Christ. When you focus your eyes on Jesus, when you focus your heart on the prize, one of the blessings that you'll receive is a discovery of new friends, people who were strange with you, but who share your heart, who share your passion, who, whose eyes are set on Jesus, like, just like your eyes, and they become an encouragement in your life, and they become an inspiration, and they become an example. They're God's provision for you. If, if this is the last year I'm going to uh, live, then, then I'm glad for those people that God is bringing into my life. Secondly, for Paul, as his focus became clearer, Jesus became dearer. The closer Paul was getting to the finish line, the greater his love for Christ became. Look at uh, verse 10, chapter 21. See what happens there. So after we had been there, <clears throat> excuse me, a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, coming over to us. He took Paul's belt tied his own hands and feet with it and said, the Holy Spirit says, in this way the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul, <clears throat> excuse me, then Paul answered, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, 
the Lord's will be done. On several occasions, the Holy Spirit had revealed to Paul's uh, friends where he had been that if he went on to Jerusalem, there would be danger for him. And to top things off, now that Paul is at Caesarea, at Philip's house, a prophet by the name of Agabus comes down and all of these words and warnings that Paul had been hearing now become an object lesson because this prophet takes Paul's belt and he ties his hands and his feet. He said, just like this, the Holy Spirit is telling you that the Jerusalem leaders, religious leaders, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind you and will turn you over to the Gentiles. Now, all of Paul's friends that were surrounded him, they're concerned about him. They love him. They don't want him to, to get hurt. They don't want him to be at the risk of losing his life. So they say, Paul, listen, we've been warned. Now this prophet is giving you this very vivid object lesson. Cancel your trip to Jerusalem for the sake of your life, for the sake of, of, of the ministry. Don't go to Jerusalem. You're being warned. And, and they're like pleading with him and they're begging him. Maybe they're even crying. And Paul says, why are you crying? Why are you breaking my heart? My achy, breaky heart. Listen. Listen. I'm ready. <laughs> That's how you know you're on the home stretch. I'm ready. I'm ready. Not only to be bound, but I'm ready to die if that's what it takes. Not because Paul was being foolish, not, not because Paul was tempting God, but because if that was God's will for him, if God was leading him to go to Jerusalem and he warned him about the risk, Paul was willing to take the risk in order to obey. Now, when does someone say, I'm willing to suffer and to die for Jesus? I tell you when, when Jesus becomes more dear than anything else. When Jesus becomes the thing that you love more than life itself. And that's the way it was for Paul. Paul had grown to love Jesus. He'd experienced him. He walked with him. He'd seen his power at work. He'd seen his glory. He'd seen his grace at work. And, and the more that Paul lived and the more that Paul traveled and the more that he advanced in the ministry, the more he loved Jesus. He came to love him more than his own comfort, more than his own safety, more than his own life. That's how you know you're running the home stretch. That's how you know that your eyes are set on the prize. That's how you know you're getting close to the goal. Whenever your heart is in love with Jesus in spite of everything else. I read on Twitter today, someone posted, not today, but this week, something that I thought was relevant. That the gate narrow, the road hard, the trials many, the promise certain, the joyful. Paul had found his joy in Christ. Yes, it was difficult. Yes, the gate is narrow. Yes, the road is hard. Yes, the trials are many, but the promise is sure and the joy is full. When you focus on the prize, when your eyes are set on the goal, when, when your heart is on the finish line, there's joy. Yes, there's difficulty. Yes, it hurts. 
Yes, uh, you have to overcome the pain, but there's joy. C.S. Lewis says, it is not your business to succeed, but to do right. When you have done so, the rest lies with God. Paul was not concerned with his own welfare. He was not concerned with self-preservation. He was not concerned with his success. The one thing that Paul was concerned about was loving Jesus well and obeying him to the very end. And that brought him joy. Jerusalem or bust. That's what Paul had in his heart. The third thing that we discovered is that when you focus your attention on the prize, culture becomes strange. Paul pressed on to win the prize. And as he did, the culture, which was once familiar to him, became strange, became foreign. Even the prophet Agabus foreshadowed this. He said, the Jewish leaders will bind you and turn you over. Now think about this. The Jewish leaders were Paul's people. They were his ethnic group. He shared a language with them. He shared a culture with them. He shared traditions with them. He shared a religion with them. He was once respected among them. They had at one time commissioned him on missions on their behalf. But, but now that, that Paul is, is focusing on obeying Jesus, now that Paul is running this last leg of the race, these people that are supposed to be family, these people that are supposed to be his nation, turn against him and they will turn him over to the foreigners. Usually people that are citizens of the same nation will protect each other against the harm of foreigners, but in this case, his own people are gonna turn him over to the Gentiles. It's a familiar motif, isn't it? It's not too long before this that a rabbi from Nazareth sets his face toward Jerusalem. The city where the temple is, the city where his father was worshiped, the the city where the law was taught and respected that pointed to him. And as he goes to Jerusalem, the religious leaders, his people, his own, his own culture, his own ethnicity, his own religion, arrest him and turn him over to the Romans to be executed. So it should be no surprise to somebody like Paul who committed his life to this Jesus of Nazareth that the same thing might happen to him. Let's keep reading verse 17. It says, when we arrived at Jerusalem, the brothers and sisters received us warmly. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James and all the elders were present. Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. When they heard this, they praised God. They said to Paul, you see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed and all of them are zealous for the law. They've been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. What shall we do? They will certainly hear that you have come, so do what we tell you. There are four men with us who have made a vow. 
take these men joining their purification rites and pay their expenses so that they can have their heads shaved. Then everyone will know there is no truth in these reports about you, but that you yourself are living in obedience to the law. Interesting. Uh, when, when Paul arrives in Jerusalem, the, the, the first thing is that he's received warmly. The brothers and sisters in Christ that he previously knew are excited to see him. It's a homecoming. There, there's a joyful reunion. And the next day, he meets up with James and the elders of the church. James is kind of like the senior minister among the team of elders, a team of ministers in the church in Jerusalem. And Paul tells James and the elders about all of the wonderful things that God has been doing during his missionary trips. And James and the elders praise God for that. They are thankful that both Jews and Gentiles around the world are coming to know Christ, the Savior, the Lord, the Messiah. And then James and the elders report to Paul that while he's been traveling and bringing Gentiles to the faith, that a lot of the Jews in Jerusalem have also acknowledged Jesus as the Messiah. They have believed in Jesus, which is good news. But the interesting thing about this is that these Jews were zealous of the law. That means that these Jews saw Jesus as a fulfillment of their religion, but they didn't see him as a new faith. They didn't see the need to abandon their ways and their customs. They thought it was important to continue to circumcise their children and to continue to obey the law and to continue to go to the temple and the synagogue and, and observe everything they observed before, not for salvation, but because it was their culture. It was their tradition. And Jesus was the fulfillment of it. And so they had heard that Paul, when he went around the world, that he was telling Jews to stop doing that, that he was telling Jews to abandon the law and not to circumcise their children, and not to observe Judaism. They were okay with Paul talking about Jesus. These were, were Messianic Jews, if you would. They were okay with Paul talking about the Lord Jesus as Savior, Messiah, but they were not okay with Paul telling the Jews to stop their cultural norms and their customs. Well, the fact is that Paul didn't do that. In fact, Paul kept Judaism himself. He went to the, to the Jewish feasts in the temple. He, he observed the law. He, he went to the synagogue not to be saved, but because that was his heritage. And he valued his heritage. And he understood Jesus to be the fulfillment. When Paul went to the temple on the Feast of Pentecost or Passover or Sukkoth or whatever other feast, he understood the ultimate meaning of that feast because he already know, knew Jesus. So these this rumors about Paul telling the Jews to stop keeping the law was false. Paul was telling Gentiles, listen, you don't need to keep the law to have a relationship with Christ because Christ has already kept the law for you. So you come to him by faith. But, but these people in Jerusalem had heard rumors. You know how dangerous rumors are? You know how difficult it is to deal with untruth? Heard it from a friend who heard it from a friend who heard it from another. Somebody who posted it and reposted it and tweet, tweeted it and retweeted it. 
And then no one checks out the source. No one cares to ask the source. No one cared to go to Paul and ask, is this true? No one cared to go to Paul's close friends and say, look, we've heard this. Is this true? They made up their minds about how they felt about Paul. Their cultural zeal was more powerful than the truth. So James and the church elders have an idea on how Paul can can change their minds. They knew Paul wasn't guilty of what he was being accused of. So they recommended to Paul, look, there are four Jews that are wanting to keep a vow. This was, this was a, a religious custom in Judaism. And maybe you can sponsor them because there are some costs involved in their purification rites. And so take out your purse and dish out some money to support their purification rites and go with them to the temple. And when these new believers in Christ that are so zealous of the law see that, they're going to say, oh, it's not true. The rumors are not true. And so they, they tell Paul to do that. That's a little bit strange to me. I don't know about you. It's strange that Paul would have to go to the temple to prove something to those who are supposed to be his new brothers and sisters in Christ. It's awkward when you have to say the things that somebody else wants you to say or do the things that somebody else wants you to do to prove that you're legit. I, I, I kind of think that, that if somebody says, look, if you don't say the things I want you to say and do the things that I want you to do, then I'm not going to be your friend. I kind of think that maybe they're not really your friend. Paul went ahead and, and did what the church elders told him. He took the man and purified himself according to Jewish law. They went to the temple. He paid the money. He gave the notification. But it remains a strange event in his life. It must have felt weird for him. And I see this contrast. When Paul is traveling in these foreign countries... He has this warm reception in home after home after home. But when he comes home to Jerusalem, there's mistrust. And, and, and there's this distancing. And there's this, look, you need to do this to prove yourself. Paul David Tripp said, life this side of eternity is a glory war. What glory will capture your heart and in so doing, control the way you make decisions and the way you live? If the glory of the heavenly kingdom captures your heart, then the earthly kingdom becomes less important. If your eyes are focused on the prize, on the finish line, then what's behind you doesn't matter much anymore. If the glory of Jesus is what matters, then the glory of everything else doesn't really matter. In Paul's case, the culture that became strange was the religious culture. It wasn't the atheist or the immoral that became strange to him. It was the people who upheld God's word. It was the people who respected the law. It was the people who served the God that, that Paul served. But they became more obsessed with the external rites, with the traditions, with the customs than with a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. For us today, the, the same strangeness can, 
can take place as we draw close to Christ. There's a religious culture that is more interested in the external, in the customs, in the traditions than they are in the living power of Jesus Christ in the life of believers. And as the people of God today, we need to ask ourselves in this glory war, which glory will capture our hearts? Will it be the glory of Jesus or will it be our glory? Will it be the glory of the kingdom of God or will it be the glory of another kingdom? There's also a secular culture whose moral values have strayed away from God's heart. The moral fiber of society seems to slip further and further away from the Judeo-Christian values that once were taken for granted. And it looks strange. It looks strange. The world around us looks strange. And if it looks strange to you, if the world seems like a strange place to you, that's how you know you're on the home stretch. That's how you know that your eyes are set on a different kingdom. That's how you know that your heart is on the prize that is heavenward. And the closer you get to heaven, the more strange earth is going to be. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't care. I'm not saying that we shouldn't try to make a difference. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that your perspective changes. I'm just saying that when, when you feel like a foreigner at home is how you know that you're following the right king. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. If this is my last year to live, if the world ends tomorrow, I want to turn my eyes upon Jesus. I want to look on his glory and grace and I want everything else to grow dim in the light of that. What about you? Would you stand with me? As you think about what's ahead, whether you live one more month or one more year or 10 more years or more than that, will you join Paul and others in fixing your eyes on the prize and running as if this were the home stretch, because it just might be. Will you fix your eyes on Jesus and will you let his glory give its light to everything else? If that's what you want to do, if that's your heart's desire, then tell him right now, right there where you are, whatever that means to you, whatever that looks like for you, this is a moment of commitment and response.